Hey everyone, welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. It's Roger and Elias here today. How's it going, Elias? Great. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. You got a big weekend coming up? Uh, yeah, actually, we got a. Uh, I officiate football. You know that. I don't know if the listeners know that, but I have a, a high school game uh, this weekend and a Division three college football game this. You weekend. have the Linmar so, game this weekend. Last weekend, I yeah, was Lindmar at Linmar. Yep. Did you blow any calls? Uh, yeah, one. It's all right. Nobody so, knew, did they? Um, it was just. I don't know. It was a justified call, so I call it unsportsman unsportsmanlike conduct on a kid, which I'm very typically very lenient because football is a game where you get excited and that's okay. Um, but it was a blowout score, and I felt like some of the players were getting a little too arrogant and chippy, so I just kind of did it as a message. But uh, looking back, I feel like I was over-officiating, and that's not something I want to do. So in my opinion, it was a mistake. Well, at least you haven't thrown on sportsmanlike conduct on me yet, so I'm sure that's coming at some point in the future. That's just given. Uh, you know what's funny, though? That I'm glad you brought that up because I was reading an article this morning, and I hadn't looked at the, the outline for today too much. But um, speaking of unsportsmanlike conduct, the SEC is starting a crackdown on overblown ESG labels. And for people that don't know what ESG stands for, it stands for Environmental Social governance focused investments and what's happened is we've seen this massive inflow into these funds over the last i don't know three to five years and they've been around for a while but there's been a really renewed focus recently in fact there's about 35 trillion i think i read in this article 35 trillion of so-called sustainable assets today and the sec is starting to go after some of these funds because what is the criteria for environmental, social, government governance focused? It's broad. It's it's up to the fund itself. Um, but I think it's interesting because I feel like the SEC has thrown their unsportsmanlike conduct on a lot of these funds because you know it reminds me of was it three years ago when anything that came out that said crypto or it didn't matter. They were just launching funds and it is everybody bought it and they're still doing that today. But um, a few years ago, something like that happened and they kind of flew, threw their flag on that as well. Yeah. So the ESG, I mean, that's so what they're cracked down. They're starting to look at these funds and they're saying, OK, you're telling your investors you're environmentally friendly, socially friendly um, and government friendly for your investors and. So that's what you like. You can't just market it and say, oh, this is what we are and then not do it. Yeah. They're so they probably need to get a little more. So what this is, they're probably going to see more specific definitions instead of like now where it's a pretty broad category. And it is a buzzword. I mean, there's articles and talk every day about ESG investing. They're calling it greenwashing, making everything seem greener. Right. Oh, you know, it's socially responsible, it's environmentally responsible. And so what really happens is they have a fund manager or, or committee and they go out and try to say, okay, company XYZ, they screen it for, you know, whether they invest in tobacco or guns or clean energy or whatever. They try to screen those companies out. But the question's becoming, how good are they really doing at vetting those people? And if you think about socially responsible investing, why wouldn't it be popular? I mean, most people want to invest in things that are things and people that are doing good things. Correct. I think so. Yeah. Um, 
So it's become a massive, massive buzzword. We've actually been reading some stuff about including it in 401k plans because if you go look at most 401k plans, they don't have any type of socially responsible options in there. There, There is one company that we work with um, and have clients with who do have a social one socially responsible fund uh, in their 401k lineup. Um, but it's just become a big movement. And I go back and think... And, and we track what investment managers do, like big people like BlackRock and people like that. And as soon as Biden was elected, all of a sudden you saw all of this ESG type investments added to their portfolios, which makes sense because that administration, I think people are under the assumption that we are going to make a push for the clean new the green new deal or clean energy or whatever they might be doing so maybe that's part of where this influx has come into socially responsible investing yeah so in my i guess as far as my my favorite my favorite aspect of it and i think something investors can get excited about is the funds that are doing this and then they're investing in companies that are committed to like social causes, whether it's having diversity on their board of directors or making sure there's equal pay, like some of those things that come up in society that are maybe a little bit negative. And I think it's great that there's an opportunity for if you if that's very important to you and you want your dollars invested that way. I think it's it's wonderful that that opportunity is there for the consumer. Well, and I actually think there's been merit shown through long term returns that having that board governance and having the diversity actually can lead to better results for the investor. If you think generally about a company that their primary focus is, you know, being environmentally conscious, doing good for people, being diversified, treating people good, it's a good company. Typically those companies do well. If you have a company that doesn't care about that stuff, it means they probably don't care that much about their employees. They don't really care about much other than just the bottom line. Right. And I know personally, I want to do business with companies that care about their employees and take good care of them. Um, And so this article you shared, so not only is it investing, but it's transitioning kind of into like responsible banking and stuff like that, where you can do business with socially responsible banks. Um, Do you have any insight? into that and how that works? You know, I haven't really personally looked into it to be completely honest with you, but it makes sense if they're gonna make sure that they're having a focus on being diversified, having equal pay, board diversification, and doing the right things for the environment, It people are gonna gravitate towards that. People are looking for that today. I mean, the new administration made a push for clean energy, the Green New Deal, all those things are trying to, to back. And there's a certain amount of people that are behind that. Um, so for me, though, here's the one thing I, I want people that are investing to think about. I'm all about doing good for the environment, doing good for people. But at the end of the day, the, our responsibility, let's say a client has a mandate of, hey, I want all ESG in my portfolio, is to do well for them long-term. Because if you think about just buying an S&P 500 index, there's no ESG that goes into that. Um, I gotta tell you a story. This is probably four years ago. I was running a Morningstar screener looking for, I was looking for some risk returns for a particular portion of our portfolio. And 
I put the fund into the portfolio and I wasn't really aware that it was an ESG fund until I dug a little deeper, but its returns had done terrific over the last 15 years. It had good risk adjusted returns and it started making me think, well, maybe there is something to the ESG thing. But as far as banking, um, I haven't done that myself. I will tell you that just because, and this goes back to what the SEC is talking about, just because a bank or someone says they're green or their ESG conscience, it doesn't necessarily mean they are because there's not a whole lot of regulation to it at this point. Yeah. So really there is still going to be some responsibility of the consumer or the investor to, to vet that. Like if you think you're going to work with a socially responsible bank, you're probably going to have to vet that and make sure that is, that is really happening because it's just too broad. It's too broad of a definition. It's almost like, um, you know, organic produce. Well, the standards to actually be organic are pretty high. And I've heard plenty of times, um, cause I actually, I'm friends with a farmer who's got, he's got a market out on his property and he does not sell organic produce, but he has buyers that will buy from him and then label it organic, which is totally beside the point. And he tells them, he's like, you shouldn't, you should not be doing that. That's not the way this works. Well, and here's the problem with organic. I, I had a client who um, is a cancer research doctor. We were just talking about organic food. Well, you have a fence line, right, between properties here in Iowa? Yeah. And if I'm organic on one side of the fence and the other guy on the other side's not organic, how do you – I mean, there's wind in Iowa. They do yeah, a little spring. It comes water. over here. So yeah, yeah. it's so broad. And ESG investing, the thing with ESG, I think – with organic, and I don't, you know, I'm not in the food industry, but organic, there's some criteria they have to meet. ESG hasn't really, the criteria is environmental, social, governance focused. There hasn't been like a hard criteria set, right? There's no standards that, that have to be met. And that's probably what the SEC is going to look into. But anyway, so the SEC through their unsportsmanlike flag, just like Elias on green. But I'm reading the next one. I'm going to let you talk about this, Elias. Yeah, so we had a there we had a an article and a TikTok video. Um, did did you watch the TikTok video? Imagine this scenario: I was finishing up at the gym with a buddy of mine, and he said, "Chris, my house is worth five hundred thousand dollars, and it's roughly half paid off." And you know what I said, bro? You could take the two hundred thousand dollars in that house and either feel good that your house is half paid off, or you could take that two hundred thousand dollars in having it sit in five other houses. Meanwhile, over the next three, four years, as we experience massive appreciation, you're now earning that growth on all five of these houses. You're also experiencing cash flow on all five of these houses. You're also experiencing tax breaks on all five of these houses. This is how I retired at the age of 26. I basically went against society's game plan about pay off debt, stay out of debt, be safe, conservative, put your money in stupid single digit garbage. And I said, you know what? I've got to go to investments that can produce double digit ROIs for me. Yeah. So it's basically, it's about investment properties and real estate. This is a topic we've talked about before. So I'll just kind of give some background information. So we had an article about buying investment properties. And then we also saw a TikTok video um, about it. And so just so everyone's clear, in general, I do believe two of the best ways to build wealth over the long term are through stock market or the capital markets, equity markets, and real estate. I think I think both of those are very good opportunities. And 
personally, I don't think it needs to be one or the other. I think if you want to, I think if you want to do them, you should do both. I do think investing into the market is easier and, and here's why. So real estate investing and like this TikTok video, all the things you see about it or read or watch, it sounds great and it sounds easy and it sounds like anybody can do it, but there are certain, there's, there's only certain ways it's going to work out. One, you have to have, have to have the ability and the time to manage the properties and the tenants. So you have to have some level of knowledge of how to fix things when they're broken. Um, when you have a tenant move and there's a hole in a door, or a hole in a wall, you have to know how to fix that kind of stuff or have the contacts to be able to get someone to fix it and afford to pay for it. Or there's another route where you could build in um, what property managers charge to manage properties for people. And if you can make it work, then that's great. So I do think it's a good way to build wealth. I don't think it's easy. Well, here's here's what's going on is the the TikTok craze, people in today's world, especially younger people, are really attracted to this idea of passive income. I gotta yes. do something I don't have to work to get any yeah. Put up a initial work and then I don't have to do anything ever again. And in theory, that's what real estate investing is, but it's not. The people that are making money in real estate investing are extremely busy and putting in an extreme amount of effort. And I want people to be clear. I don't believe your personal residence is an investment. I don't believe that. It's your place to live. So this TikTok video talks about a gentleman who's has a, you know, let's say a $400,000 house that's half paid off. They take the 200,000 and buy other houses. Well, in that scenario, he's turned the equity into his home into multiple investments. Those rental properties he bought, in my opinion, those are investments. His primary residence is still not an investment because very few people that I know go through life and downsize their personal residence unless they have to when they retire. It's not a personal choice. Most people don't say, well, I live in a $500,000 house and tomorrow I'd like to go buy one for 200. Like that just doesn't happen. Even if they downsize from a house to a condo, what do they do? I buy, sell my house for 500 and I buy a condo for 500. That's what they do unless they're financially forced to do it. So we have a gentleman in our office who I don't even know how many investment properties Walt owned over the year. It was a lot. And he knew how to do this stuff and he had people hired to do it. Finally, just called it quits. He's like, look, I can still go invest in real estate through the capital markets and not have to do all of the work. So there's multiple ways to do this. I will tell you personally for me, I'm not a real estate guy. Like I own real estate. I don't view any of the real estate I own as really a true investment because it doesn't generate me dividends, income, dividends or income. It may generate some capital gains at some point in time. But the reason I don't do real estate is I can't fix anything. I'm busy enough doing this and I don't really want to hire anybody to do it. And so you have to know what kind of a person you are. One key thing I think people should, you know, be aware of, or what are the hidden costs of this? I mean, hey, great, I go buy a place. And people don't look at their rental property the same as they look at their personal residence because they're not living there, right? Correct. So they go, they oh, yeah, this is a $150,000 place I can rent for $1,200 a month, and they're punching the numbers, and, yep, cash flow looks great. 
Well, the first thing I tell somebody is just figure it's only going to be occupied nine months a year. That builds you a buffer, right? Yeah, you have to factor in some sort of non-occupied time for the Absolutely. cash flow. So, And then also think about this. How old are these homes? These aren't like new construction homes where there's no problems, right? They're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old. Well, what's going to break? Air conditioning units, heating units, refrigerators. Are you willing to take that phone call at 4 o'clock in the morning on July 4th when somebody's AC goes out and now you have to deal with it on your holiday? These are all the things that people just really don't think about when they get in real estate. And I'm not saying it's bad. Just know what you're getting into and be prepared for the work that really comes with it. Yeah, another thing I'll, I'll point out, um, like when you see these videos, whether it's real estate investing, options trading, day trading, all of these get rich quick schemes, there's no such thing as a get rich quick scheme. Everything that builds wealth is going to take a certain amount of work. And in this scenario, can you buy real estate investments and get to a point in your life where you have passive income? You can. It's probably going to take 20, 25, 30 years. It's not going to happen in five years. It's not going to happen in two years. So just kind of some of the simple ideas behind it of just anything that's, hey, this is a get rich quick scheme. Well, the reality is it's not going to happen that way. Well, and this goes back to understanding where you're consuming your financial advice. Nobody knows who this guy is. He might not own any real estate whatsoever. Anybody can get on TikTok and make a video. I mean, I could get on TikTok and make a video right after we're done here. So you got to know who you're getting your advice from. And it kind of goes back to the whole idea of that wholesale advice in general is dangerous. In life, people think they can do everything, everything themselves. And a lot of times they can. But think about wholesale advice in general. And I, I was reading an article on USA Today, and then um, I saw another one on Forbes, and it's just talking about the problem with it. And the first person that comes to mind with just wholesale advice, and who are the people that are really providing tons of wholesale advice? It's Dave, Dave Ramsey, Ramsey, Susie Orman, yeah. Motley Fool. You know, we can go name them. They've done a great job branding their company. And the reason they've been able to brand their company and do a great job doing that isn't because they're giving bad advice or giving good advice, they're giving simplified advice to people. Well, and the most, so, and here's to me the most important part because I, I'm with you. I believe financial planning is unique, is unique to the client, but the, the wholesale cookie cutter advice, the real reason it works is because someone executed the plan. No matter what plan you have, whether it's Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman or a plan specifically made for you, it will work if you execute it. That's the most important part. That's actually a good point. People don't think about that. It's execution. That's all right. it is. It is execution. But I look at this and a guy like Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey has no background in investing. Zero. He has no licenses. He didn't go to school for finance. He don't tell him that he thinks he knows his numbers are way off. But think about it. What did he do? He started investing in real estate when he was young, went bankrupt, and then it started teaching a course to people how to get out of debt. So he has background and he studied finance and personal finance. But when it comes to investing, he has a minimal level of knowledge, in my opinion. Um, he tells people you should choose mutual funds over ETFs. Why? 
Well, he says mutual funds are designed to be long-term investments, can outperform the market, and are often professionally managed. I would tell you that none of those are really things, except they're designed to be long-term investments, I guess. ETFs are designed to be long-term investments. ETFs can outperform the market, right? Because not all ETFs are just the S&P 500. And there are ETFs that are professionally managed. So those are all wrong. But the reason he has said this is because it drives his narrative. Because what does Dave do? Well, if you need help with investing, because I'm not licensed, go to my website, contact one of my professionals. And his professionals are good. There's nothing wrong with them. But the narrative is to push people that way. Um, It's just bad advice. The other thing when you think of Dave, and I'm not picking on Dave per se, but he's outspoken about these things. He tells you, you should be looking for investments that have a 10-year track history that have earned 12% a year. This is dangerous advice, and here's why. Just because an investment earns 12% a year doesn't mean it's good for you. It means you're at least 100% in the stock market. In fact, think about this. He tells you it should have a 12% average rate of return, but from 1998 to 2020, the S&P's averaged 1164 Right. Yeah. And if you're looking at, and I I get what he's talking about because you want to look at track records, but okay. When managing a mutual fund, the most important part of that's probably the fund manager. So if you're looking at a 10 year track history, but the fund manager just changed two years ago, that's not really accurate information on the total performance of the new fund manager. Completely irrelevant. And think about this. What the fund has done long-term is irrelevant to you at this point. How do you come up with an investment allocation? I know how Dave tells you to do it. It's not an investment allocation. It's just buying a bunch of growth stuff. The only way someone can determine whether an investment fits their, what I would call investment protocol or investment policy statement is to create a financial plan. The return is irrelevant. We had clients in the other day. They own some great funds, but they needed to be about 60% stock and 40% bonds. And they were 100% stock with the riskiest stocks that were out there. The riskiest. Didn't make any sense. Those funds have averaged 38% a year for the last five years. Guess what? It wasn't what they needed because what they needed was less risk. So if those fall 40, 50, 60%, it didn't destroy destroy their overall retirement picture. Yeah, and they were that was a great example there of because the funds that they owned, well, those funds and the fund manager has never been shy about this. It's a 30 to 40 year investment time horizon strategy. Well, these clients are 70 and they're retired. So like that that's a big disconnect. I can I can understand why you would want how you can get excited about that. And it's like the shiny new object we talk about. It's easy to show someone that and get them excited and here, do this. But for them, what's more important is let's have a plan that just gets you where you want to go. Um, It's like the story you talk about the two roads. There's you can take the gravel road, the back roads to get somewhere, or you can just take the smooth two lane county highway that gets you there in the same amount of time. And when you're retired, 
especially now I can understand you're accumulator. So you want to do be more aggressive and that's, that's fine. And that's great. If you're 70 and you're looking at a systematic distribution plan, why do you want that volatility and that risk? Like why do you even want that part of your life? Most 70 year olds don't want that to be part of their life. So Elias, I know we've talked about how wholesale advice in some cases can be bad, but I want to talk about an example of where there's some wholesale advice that's actually good. When I say wholesale advice, I'm not talking about TikTok advice, YouTube advice. I'm talking about the people who've done this for a long period of time. So Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, whoever you follow, whoever you follow. Okay. I read an article and this came out in FA magazine. Um, and I think the source is Dalbar, which if you don't know who Dalbar is, they do all the industry studies on investor performance and behavior versus the markets. They're a big research company. Um, they're in fact, they're the top research company out there. They were established in 1994 and they put a lot of the quantitative analysis behind investor behavior. The first half of 2020, the S the average investor lagged the S&P 500 by 2%. And I went further and read this article. Part of it was because there was 1.5% net withdrawals, which tells me people are trying to time the market. That's exactly. So when I was reading it, that's when I got to that point, the major reason for the lag was people trying to time the market. I have the last three months, people are like, what's the market going to do? And you know what my answer is? I don't know. If I knew, I'd have, once again, the sign out front called Crystal Ball Financial. I'd have a line two miles down the road because everybody would know that I knew. I don't know. But here's what I do know. If you have a well-written plan and you know what your investment allocation sh should be, we don't have to worry about time in the market because in a financial plan, there's not one single measure in there that there's not a box for me to check that says market timing. Once we get in, once we get out, that doesn't exist in the the people that I call give wholesale advice, they do give, give good advice on this. There's no part of them that are saying, I've never heard Dave Ramsey say, hey, you should sell now. He's never said that. Yeah, and He I, talks more about it as an opportunity. Hey, market's down. This is an opportunity for an accumulator. If you're, once again, a person that is in the decumulation stage, taking income from your portfolio, well, you better have a plan for how you're gonna deal with that because it's not if the market's going to go down. It's when, and what's your plan to deal with that? That's the mature way to handle market volatility. Yeah. And I, and I agree with your, your point there about that's where the wholesale advice is good because all of those financial gurus that we know, yes, they do talk about buy and hold. And right here, investors, average investor lagging the S and P 500. That's exactly what it is. It's trying to time the market. And I have a good story about this. I just met with a new prospect, came in to interview us. Maybe he's going to work with us. And at the beginning of the great financial crisis, I'm talking 2007, 2008, he had investable, an investable uh, net worth of almost $2 million. And he got scared when the market went down and he put, a, put everything into the money market into the money market fund within his 401k. And since then, his strategy has been to swing trade options. So he's been trading options for like 25 years and he's a swing trader. 
but then his profits he puts into the money market, his investable net worth has not changed since 2008. In the greatest bull market in the history of the capital markets, he could have he could have doubled his easily doubled his money by now, maybe even two and a half or three times. And but he's I I didn't say this to him. I was really nice. I just kept asking him questions. But that's an example of you're getting too cute. You're doing things that you don't need to do and you're not getting the returns you think you're getting. He would have the market since the bottom of March of 09, the bottom of the market. It's up 500%. So that's if he easiest. had 2 million and it went to one and now he made 500, he's at 5 million. If he just did nothing, like didn't do anything, never opened a statement, goes back. We've talked about this tons of times. The worst thing that's happened is the ability for the average investor, the everyday investor to go check their 401k statement every day, online accounts every day. It's on my phone every day because they feel like they need to make a change. It makes them more attached to it. In the 80s and 90s, you got your statement like once a month, once a quarter. You didn't get all that excited about it because you didn't see all this these micro moves. You didn't see the day it went down 2% or the day it went up 3%. You just said, oh, man, for the month it made 0.8% and it went up a little bit. Yeah, we're good. Didn't feel like you had to do a bunch of stuff now. Someone sees it goes down 2%, like the market's crumbling. It's going to go down. I mean, if the market goes down 2 or 3%, the media makes you think it's the next big thing. Like it's going to go down 30 who knows? So there's a huge, there's a huge disconnect. So I have an app on my phone where I can click on it and I can see S and P 500 Dow Jones. And then the ticker symbols I follow. If you look at the, like if it's a negative day, if you look at the articles before you look at the actual returns for the day, you would think the market's down 10, 15, 20%. It could be like a one or 2% move negative And like a headline will be, Markets are free falling. Like, how is that even, how is that considered a free fall? Most years we have an intraday move of, or intra-year intra move of down 13%. Like most years, top to bottom, it goes down 13. So right. And most years it finishes positive. A 10% correction is not a bad thing. Cleanses it shouldn't the market. be considered exciting. It should just be considered normal. Jonas in our office came up with the best analogy of this. Everybody's checking their investment accounts every day, even though in America, most people's single largest asset is their home. How many people are checking Zillow every day to see their home price and then putting it on the market and taking it off the market based upon the previous day? No one. Nobody. Nobody. People should treat their investments like their house. Just boring. Well, hopefully I get 5 or 6% a year appreciation over the next 10 years and we sell it, we can get a bigger house or whatever we're going to do with it. But nobody does that. I can check the value of my house. My wife checks the value of the house, but I don't act on it. We're not saying, well, better call the realtor today and list it. No one does yeah. that. Why is it different? It's especially if that's your biggest asset. So I think that's the one, the one place that most wholesale advice is buy and hold and buy good things. I mean, if you think about Dave Ramsey, he wants you to buy actively managed funds with a 10 year track history. There's a reason he says a 10 year track history. Because if it's done good for two or three years, well, everything's done good the last two years. How hard is that to build a track history? But you still go start finding actively managed funds that have a 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year track history that have done well. Now that just gives you another level of confidence that 
we actually have a process, regardless of who the fund manager is, to follow through on these types of returns. The last thing I want to talk about, Elias, and I was watching Rick Eidelman or listening. I was actually listening to his podcast. It would have been well, his last hunting season. He was talking about this already, and it's been talked about a long time. But the Social Security um, trustees released their most recent information on the old age and uh, the Social Security old age and survivors insurance trust fund. And it's now expected to be depleted by the year 2033. And at that time, when that happens, there will be a 76% reduction in benefits into Social Security. And I don't think most people are planning for this at all. How many people do you... How many people do you have in your office come in and say, hey, how are we going to deal with Social Security being cut? How many times do clients ask yeah. that? I don't think they, they don't ask that specific question, but they do ask our opinion of Social Security and right. whether it's going to be there or not. But yeah, no one, no one just directly asks. So what's our plan when this happens? Yeah, I mean, the cool thing about doing a financial plan, because right now it's all guessing and we have to make some educated assumption of financial plan. In our planning software, and I know I do this for my younger people, and, you know, if you're 60, I'm not doing this as much just because I don't really think they're going to come cut your benefit. Something could happen. But we can model a benefit cut down to 76% for people. I know for all my young people, I do. I got a box I can check. Ooh, we're going to figure on 75% of what your current Social Security benefit is. Um, also in there, the Disability Insurance Trust Fund is scheduled to pay benefits till 2057. And at that time, they'll have to take a 91% reduction. So that's large, but still not as big. But I think the biggest thing people should be thinking about is what are we going to do or what is your plan if they cut Social Security? Yeah, so a couple of things here. Um, for, young, for younger investors, and you kind of touched on it, I would just plan on not being there. And then if you get to a point where you have enough wealth built, you can draw the income you need to have the lifestyle. And then social security is there. It's like, it's like extra gravy on your mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving. That's like, exactly that, how I want people to do it. That, that's the best advice you just gave, because if you plan on not getting it, you're 25, 30, 35, 40, you plan on not getting it. What's the worst thing that happens? You get an extra check. Okay. Yeah, that's great. It just makes it easier. Right. And so this is obvious that this needs to get solved, right? Because Social Security is not really an entitlement program. Social Security people pay into. So it's not just like a handout that you just get. You have to work and earn the benefit that you're getting. So people that have built wealth and at an age where, they're be, where they have become wealthy, okay, one of the ways to solve this is to raise taxes, right? to help fund it. So I think that does need to be on people's mind, especially if you have a lot of wealth built up is what is your tax strategy and how are you getting taxes to either a tax-free growth space or limiting your future tax liabilities? I think there does need to be some conversation about that because this is obviously coming down the road and the people who you do more today to deal with it, the better off I think you're going to be in the long term. Well, the biggest question is what has the pandemic done to it? And I was reading some articles because, you know, we've had a large percentage of the people who've passed away from 
or during the pandemic are older. So people are like, well, it's going to lower the overall age. I was actually reading some research reports that said that actually has less to do on long-term effect where in the near term it may, but not over a long period of time, it has less effect um, on the overall outcome here, but it will be interesting to see what the new projections are next year. Uh, with that said, I appreciate everybody listening. It was a great show. Elias, have a great weekend refereeing. Don't throw the unsportsmanlike conduct flag unless you really need to. I'm keeping my flag in my pocket this weekend. I'm I'm letting the boys play all weekend this weekend. So. What's the college game you have this weekend? Uh, it's out in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's Nebraska Wesleyan versus a school. I think it's called Eureka. So it's Division three programs that are playing. Oh, cool. Well, have a great weekend. Appreciate everybody listening. If you need any help or advice or want to get a financial plan, you can go to btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.